So Pentecost Sunday. It's a day of celebration. I suppose for a lot of us, I, I should have mentioned in the prayers, my apologies, but for a lot of, a lot of us here who um, uh, are either parents or teachers, today is a, there's another reason to celebrate, and that's that it's the beginning of half term. So um, if you're, if you're um, in the teaching profession, then I pray that you have a, a wonderful restful week. And um, if you're a parent, I wish you the best of luck. Now, I pray that you have a wonderful, wonderful week um, with, with children at home as well. Um, but it's, it's always good to take time, isn't it, to, to sort of take stock and reflect. And as I was preparing for today, I looked at the list of the, the, the characteristics of the church that are on our website, this list that we're, we're working through at the moment. And number two on there is spirit-led worshippers. And I looked at this a few weeks ago and I thought, I've got to change the order because Pentecost falls halfway through this series. And I can't, I can't talk about spirit-led worshippers without mentioning Pentecost. It just The two tie in so well together. So you may have noticed, um, if, you've, uh, if you've had a look at the website, you may have noticed that I've sort of rejigged the order slightly. So today we're, we're, we're considering what it means to be spirit-led worshippers. And we're considering very much that that concept through the lens of Pentecost. Pentecost is, is a massive day in the Christian calendar. It's the day that God poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit didn't exist before then. Of course, we know that the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters um, uh, right back at the beginning of Genesis. We see throughout the Old Testament many, many times when, when God, um, uh, through the Holy Spirit, he causes things to happen brings about uh, miraculous events or healings, these things that happen, but it's very much in isolation. On a day of Pentecost, God's Holy Spirit is poured out upon the disciples to be, to be with the instruction to take it and to share it and to spread it. In effect, God says, right, there you go, you've got this gift, go and share it with the whole wide world. There is, this is for everybody. There is no limit to what I'm giving you. This Spirit is going to be poured out and poured out and poured out on my people. Needs to be taken to the ends of the earth. This is my gift to you. And so Pentecost is a really special day. Now you might be sitting there thinking, okay, but that's, that all sounds great. And it must have been pretty amazing to be in Jerusalem on that day. If we just remind ourselves what happened, we, we see in Acts chapter 2. We're told when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. A few weeks ago, we spoke about the importance of being coming together in one place. The importance of gathering together, the gathered ecclesia, the people of God coming together to share, to encourage, to support all these things that we do when we're together. Suddenly, like a blowing, blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, the sound filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they're sitting there in this house and suddenly there's this sound, this deafening sound. Like this, this, this wind blowing from heaven. And they recognize that each of them has got flames above their head. There's, there's fire. It's not, it's not hurting them. It's not, it's not burning them. It doesn't leave them with a little scorch mark or anything like that that we're told. But it looks like a flame. And that flame is the power of God's Holy Spirit coming upon them. 
Then they began, they each begin speaking. We're told they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So suddenly, whatever the disciples are speaking, everybody, regardless of where they come from, of what their their mother tongue is, they start hearing the message in that that language. This is almost a a reversal of what happened right back in Genesis at the Tower of Babel, when people were were divided by language. All these different languages were put in place because the people were were trying, having, having seen God flood the world, they tried to build a massive tower and cover it in tar to make it waterproof. Their their thinking is, well, next time God tries that one, (laughs) we'll be one step ahead of the game. And God said, no, no, that's not how it works. And so he he suddenly divides the people by by giving different languages. And suddenly they can't understand each other. They can't work together. They can't communicate. And so different groups go off. And here at Pentecost, we see that they've come back together in Jerusalem, all these different tongues from different nations. And the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes on them, they start speaking, and suddenly there's this, there's this wonderful moment when communication is, is almost a, a universal gift. They all hear what is being said in their own languages. Luke records, <clears throat> present that day, there were Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. They all heard in their own language. Now, of course, an event like that doesn't go unnoticed. There was questions. And the main question that was... um, asked by the people who were amazed and perplexed, Scripture tells us. They asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? You see, whenever we find ourselves in a situation where we have an opportunity to speak about our faith, where we've got an audience of people, there will always be someone there who is thinking, so what? What, what? what does this mean? What can, I, what can I take from this? What, what should I understand? How should I interpret and receive this, this message, this information? This is why evangelism is so important, because it's never a waste of time. There is always someone who wants to ask the question, who has questions. But, so often when we find ourselves with an audience of some sort and an opportunity to share the gospel, there is a louder voice than the one saying, what does this mean? Here, as Peter prepares to stand up to speak, there is another voice making fun of them, saying they've had too much wine. Evangelism is really difficult. We spoke a bit about this last week. Because so often we fear ridicule. Well, that's nothing new. The disciples here on the day of Pentecost with the flames above their heads, with the different languages coming out of their mouths, with the whole crowd amongst them, they were ridiculed. (laughs) They've had too much wine. 
And often that voice in a crowd is the loudest voice. It's the most intimidating voice. It's the most threatening voice. Because that's the voice that is used to having people laugh along at the wisecracks. That's the voice of confidence. That's the voice that says, I've got life sussed, I don't need that. But it's also the voice that deep down says, if that's true, I'm in trouble. Because I'm actually quite insecure and vulnerable and uncomfortable with the life that I've led. I don't like the idea of a God who knows all about me because I know all about me and I don't like it. So I put on this front, I put on this voice and I will shout down anyone who tries to talk to me about God. I don't need a God, I don't want a God. And they tend to be the loudest voice in any given situation. And on the day of Pentecost, they were almost the loudest voice, but thankfully Peter and the eleven stood up because they had heard the other voices saying, what does this mean? Peter reminds the crowd, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. He recites from the prophet Joel. When Joel prophesied about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Peter says to people, this is what God told us was going to happen. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by this. We knew this was going to happen. We should be looking out for it. We should have been expecting this. Peter goes on to talk about Jesus. He's talking to a group of people who would have a very recent and fresh memory of Jesus. They would have known about the teachings and the healings. They certainly would have known about the triumphant entry, the crucifixion. They would have heard the rumours of the resurrection. Maybe they even saw the resurrected Christ. Verse 24, Peter says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In other words, on the day of Pentecost, Peter's main thrust was pointing to the resurrected Jesus. You might think, well, why? Why didn't he say, hey, look, this is, look, 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 look. Everyone's got flames above their heads. Listen to the language we can talk. This is a miracle. God's doing this right now. He doesn't focus on the amazing events that are happening. Instead, he, he takes the opportunity to speak about the resurrected Jesus. And there's a reason for that. If we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, <clears throat> Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The, the, the role of, of Pentecost was to equip the witnesses. It was to give power. That's the first thing Jesus says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does it mean to be a witness? Well, to be a witness, it means that you've, you've seen something. 
You, you've, you've been present and you've seen something happen. If you, I've never been called to, to give um, evidence as a witness in court. Some of you may have done. Um, but you're asked to stand there and you're asked to share what you saw or heard. The first-hand explanation. It must be quite a difficult thing to be a witness. To have people questioning, scrutinising what you're saying knowing that there's actually someone's life in the balance here. To be a witness carries great responsibility. To be a witness to something, to give testimony to something, you have to be absolutely certain of what you've seen. Jesus knows that we all, and the disciples all, have a tendency to get caught up in the busyness of the day, to forget the detail. If I said to any one of you on Easter Sunday, what, what did you have for your main course, wherever you ate your meal? Some of you would probably be able to tell me exactly because you would have cooked it. But others, oh, I don't know, did I have chicken or beef? Um, I don't know. I know I ate, but I don't remember the detail. As soon as we start to forget the detail, we become unreliable witnesses to something. And so Jesus says that you're going to be sent the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. The power needed to overcome the the loudest voice in the room. The power to be witness, to to have the confidence to speak out. But But also, you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Pentecost wasn't an opportunity for the disciples to point to another, another bit of magic God's done. Pentecost was an opportunity for the disciples to direct everybody to the resurrected Jesus. This theme is continued. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter says to the crowd... God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. We are witnesses that Jesus raised, that God raised Jesus back to life after he was killed on that cross, after his body was taken down and put in the tomb. We are witnesses to the fact that God raised him from the dead. Right from the moment that the disciples had to elect a new member, to replace Judas. What was, the, what was the, the, the job description of that disciple? What were they looking for? Acts chapter 1, verse 22. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. One of us must become a witness to the resurrection. They knew that the resurrection was the moment that everything rested on. That Jesus was brought back to life from the death, from the from dead, from death. That he walked out of that tomb, that death could not hold him. Later on, after healing the lame beggar outside the temple who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. 
Again, Peter says to the crowd that gathered there that day, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. You see, to be a witness is a powerful thing. To be able to stand up and say, I know what I know. I know what I saw. I know what I read. I know what I've experienced and what I've felt. I know what scripture says. I know. To bear witness to the resurrection is a powerful thing. It's a big responsibility. But of course, we don't all feel that power, do we? When we go out into the world, we can stand in the middle of the city centre and shout, Jesus is risen, Jesus is alive, alleluia. Most people won't pay the slightest bit of attention. We won't feel like we've got power. We won't feel like we're witnesses to something special. But that feeling, that feeling is of God. That might sound like a slightly odd thing to say. Remind ourselves, if we remind ourselves of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus recognizes he's, he's fully God, but he was fully man as well. And being fully man, Jesus had those moments where he looked around and he knew that God can change the world. But when we are of the world, the power doesn't come from us. We can't command the power. Jesus prays that God will bring him back into the presence of the Father. And only there would he have the glory. The glory of God. You see, on the day of Pentecost, we weren't given crowns. On the day of Pentecost, we weren't given authority. On the day of Pentecost, we were given the Holy Spirit. And often for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, before we can look at the people and the places and the things that we'd like to see change, the most important thing that has to happen is the change in us. The power of the Holy Spirit can be released through us once any delusions of grandeur have been dropped from us. This is why in Philippians, when Paul is talking about Jesus, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that link between humbling ourselves emptying ourselves before God being obedient to what God calls us to do Jesus was obedient to death we know in Gethsemane he, he didn't relish it he wasn't looking forward to going through the, the pain and the agony the suffering but Jesus had emptied from himself any Anything but the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit that was coming upon him at that moment. You see, in order for the Holy Spirit to work through us in powerful, true ways, the first thing we must do is humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. When we think of, when we think of the words of the psalm that was used at the coronation of many of Israel's kings, Psalm 110. It begins with the words, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is God speaking to a king on the day of coronation. Notice the language. It's not, you will do this, you will do this, you will have the power, you will have the authority. It's, you sit tight, until I, God, ordain that it's time for things to happen. When we think of the coronation of the first two kings of Israel, they weren't, well, they were a, a far cry, let's say, from the coronation that we saw a couple of weeks ago. The first king of Israel, Saul, son of Kish, was hunting for some asses that had been lost. And he meets... Samuel on the road and right there he is anointed. Is he a king? If he goes home and says to his, his brothers and his parents and his neighbours, hey, guess what guys, I'm a king. He'll be laughed out of the house. Nothing's changed. But it has. Because he's been coronated in the presence of God. But he has to go back with humility. He has to go back with patience. He has to go back with obedience. He has to carry on until the time is right for God to start using him. With King David, again, David, the great, who became the great mighty warrior, the leader of so many people, this wonderful, wonderful leader. He's out looking after a flock of sheep. His brothers are one by one, looked at and tested and they're not the king God's looking for. And then finally this boy, we're not sure how old he was, but he wasn't, he wasn't old enough to be considered a man in the house. 
And he comes in and he's anointed. In the eyes of the world, he is no king. But God says, you just sit quietly at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Any power that we have comes through God. All power and all authority rests in him. It's interesting, isn't it? We, um, we, come, we sort of have a habit in church sometimes of saying things that aren't true. Some very serious faces to that comment. I understand that. But it's, it's, it's true, isn't it? We, we throw statements around that aren't always true. We become familiar with them and we think there's a truth, but when we stop and actually consider, we talk about being raised with Christ to sit at God's right hand. Where? I, really, uh, that's... It, it will happen, but right now I'm, I'm still here. I'm, I don't, I'm not sitting at God's right hand. I'm, I'm out in the world and I'm, I'm getting battered and I'm getting knocked from one situation to another and I'm, I feel like I'm struggling sometimes. Other times I feel like I'm on cloud nine. But, but... Well, sometimes we say sin no longer has power over us. Mm. If that's true, then why do we need to come and ask for forgiveness every week? Sin is here. We do suffer from sin. We do still have sin in us. It does still have power over us. Or sometimes we say, Christ has broken down the walls of hostility. Brilliant, love that one. Well, if that was true, then you wouldn't go through every town and village in the country and see all these different denominations and churches because the majority of them have come from splits and bad blood and people falling out with each other. There is still hostility. You see, what I'm saying is, Jesus, we still have work to do for Jesus to be truly Lord of our life. The Holy Spirit is in us and around us, but that doesn't mean that we are perfect yet. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. We need, Je we need to keep working to make Jesus Lord of our life. We need the Holy Spirit in us. We need to humble ourselves. But maybe, I just want to share a reflection that I've been struggling with this week a bit. Jesus is Lord of my life. Yes. I aspire to reach standards that I know are beyond me. But as a minister, you often find yourself dealing with death. And for a lot of people, rather than starting with Jesus being the Lord of our lives... We need to understand that Jesus is also Lord of death. In my very first church, there was a lady who one day contacted late on a Sunday night, about, I think it was about nine o'clock, and she said, my mother is very, very ill. She's been given hours to live. They say she's not going to make it till morning. And she said, can people gather together to pray? And so we all um, 
I say all of us, there was about half the church turned up and we, we gathered and we, we prayed and prayed and prayed. And I remember sitting there and people were, were coming in their slippers and because and it, was, it was late at night and there was one lady who I thought, she looked quite elderly, I thought, I don't recognise her. And then when she started speaking, I suddenly thought, my goodness, I know exactly who you are, but I've never seen you without makeup on before. She said, I've, I've, she said, I was just about to get into bed and I, I, saw the, I saw the email and I thought, no, I'll go. And I thought, bless you for that. And suddenly we, we were there, we weren't making tea and coffee, we weren't worrying about microphones, we weren't worrying about sermons, or anything. we were just praying. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. The next morning, the lady went to see her, her mother and she found her sitting up in bed. And she said, Mum, what's going on? And the response was, I don't know. I ordered a bacon sandwich an hour ago and nothing's turned up. And she said, no, 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 Mum, I didn't think you'd be here. And she spoke to the medical staff and they said, can't explain it, can't explain it. Of course, the church were absolutely sky high. It was fantastic. There'd been this response. A short while later, um, there was a man called Russell and one day he got up in the morning and went to a doctor's appointment and found that death was approaching. He had a tumour. And he shared the news. And as a church, we, we surrounded him. We held the door shut against death. We were praying for him. We were supporting him and his wife. He, he, had, been a, he had been a minister, lovely guy, and he was, he was, he was just the, the, the font of wisdom and knowledge and just a wonderful man to be with. And you thought, no, 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 this can't happen. And so we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and he, had, he went through a course of treatment and, and, and he got through it. Fantastic, brilliant. But then I always remember, I remember speaking with, with this man and he, having gone through treatment, he said, I don't want to do that again. That was unpleasant and I can't face that again. And so when the cancer returned, we were still praying and praying and praying that there would be a miraculous recovery. But I remember him saying to me one day, Tom, Jesus is Lord of my life and he'll be Lord of my death. Don't fear death. He said death doesn't come in a black hood with a Scythe. Death comes with an angel from God with peace and love. And I'm looking forward to that angel taking me. At that moment, my understanding of Jesus changed because suddenly I realized that for all the faults in life, all the things I get wrong, all the mistakes that are made, all the, the, the splits that churches might go through or the heartache that is caused by different situations, at the heart of all this is the resurrected Jesus who walked out of that tomb, who walked out of that tomb, who appeared to more than 500 people and then ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. The Father who holds the true power and the true authority. 
And that's where my faith lies. And that power is put into the world in the form of the Holy Spirit. And each and every one of us, if we acknowledge Jesus, not just, of, not just as Lord of our life, but also as Lord of death. Death is the, the biggest fear that most people have. But if we can take out that fear... We take out that fear because we know that we worship a God. We're in the presence of the spirit of a God who has authority over death. Death could not hold Jesus in the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter directed people to the resurrected Christ. He said, we don't need to fear death anymore. Because if we follow Jesus, if we give him our heart, then there is nothing in this world for us to fear. For me, one of the most powerful evangelistic messages, it wasn't someone shouting from the rooftops and proclaiming good news, and it was someone saying, I'm ready to die, and I don't fear it, because I know where true power lies. On the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit was poured out, amazing acts of worship took place. 3,000 people gave their lives to follow the resurrected Christ. They recognized the power that Jesus had exercised over death itself. They recognized that he was and is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is nothing more powerful than that. Now you might be thinking, what's all this got to do with worship? But our response to Pentecost is that every aspect of our lives every part of our daily routine, every conversation we have, every example we set, everything about us can be given as an offering of obedience, humbling ourselves before God, taking out our self-interest, taking out our hurt, choosing not to take offense, but instead just remembering that everything we are Everything we do, everything we know comes from the power and the presence of God. If we live lives in that attitude, then we will be indeed true spirit-led worshippers. Not just when we sing songs on a Sunday morning, but in everything we do. And that's the power of the day of Pentecost. So let's get out there and be witnesses, witnesses to the resurrected Christ.
and the one who holds the true power and authority. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your gift. Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence with us today. And Father God, we thank you that wherever we are in life, whatever has gone behind us, we can all choose a future with you. We can always choose to turn back to you with humble, obedient hearts. Lord, none of us are perfect. None of us are are free from sin. But that doesn't mean that sin has power. That doesn't mean that we are subjected to someone else's authority. Lord, we are your people. We submit to your authority. We celebrate your presence with us. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to live our lives so that everything we do is given to you as an act of love and an act of worship. Father, as we go out into the world this week, whether we're enjoying some respite at half term, whether we're enjoying the company of our children, whether we're spending time with friends and family, or whether we're simply at work and it's just a a normal working week, Father, whatever we are doing, May we know your presence. May we know your Holy Spirit in us and around us in every moment. May we be aware, Lord, that that we are witnesses to something amazing. The resurrected Jesus. Who promised and who delivered on that promise. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit, and thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's close together by worshipping God.